This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. The signs of the times are all around us. And 1130 is significant because Solomon in Proverbs wrote these words. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he who wins souls is wise. And I just want to remind us as we begin this morning that the soul winner's crown is available to every believer. And I, I think Jesus expects that we will be his witnesses one way or the other. I had a conversation before the service with someone, and we were talking about the gift of evangelism. There are some of us who are gifted as evangelists or who are really called to preach. But all of us are witnesses. All of us testify to the things that we have seen and heard. And so hopefully today, God will help us all to become effective or more effective. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that the task is unfinished. And so we ask today that you would, by your spirit, illuminate your word. Help us to take these teachings which you have breathed and embrace them in our hearts and then practice them. Holy Spirit, ignite a fire in every one of us to passionately communicate the realities that we have experienced to those who have not. And in all this, point us to Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, for it's in his name today that we pray. Amen. The Great Commission is not mentioned in the Bible. You will not find those terms. Rather, it is the name which describes the mandate that Jesus gave to the apostles and to his disciples and encouraged them to communicate and perpetuate until he comes again. Three popular passages, you've heard them. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Acts 1.8, Matthew 24.14. Matthew 28.18, Jesus says, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples, learner followers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus again, Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power, God's ability, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And finally, Matthew 24, 14, Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, 
And this good news, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a witness to the nations, and then the end will come. I believe usually we view these passages and this commission on a macro level. And by that, I mean in a large-scale sense. It's the big picture. But the, the task is so big that it can seem insurmountable or unattainable. And so I want us to consider Jesus' approach personally in his ministry. And I want us to think about the apostles and the disciples and how they shared, because I believe it'll help you and I to share. Think about Paul's approach on a micro level, the small scale interactions that he had. I think first about his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, to the Jews, I become a Jew that I might save the Jews. And he says, to, to those under the law, I, I become as one under the law that I might save those, that I might save those under the law. And he says, to those without law, I become one without law. He said, of course, I, I don't mean not without the law of Christ, that I might save those that aren't under the law. He says, even to the weak, I will become as weak. Now listen to what he said. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Powerful. Dedication to the mandate. In fact, in Romans chapter 10, he gives us a little bit of his heart about his own people, his culture. Paul's a Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And in Romans 10, he says some very interesting things. He tells us, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Jews, for Israel, is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Think about that. Because he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul has a heart for his people, for Israel. And so when Paul preaches, when Paul goes into a new city to plant a church, to break the ground, to establish a beachhead for the kingdom of God, what does he do every time? He goes to the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue, and he takes the Old Testament scriptures. He takes the Bible, and he preaches Christ to them. He doesn't take the New Testament. It's not written yet. He takes the Old Testament, and he preaches Jesus Christ to them. And in every case, a few people get saved. Sometimes a couple men, sometimes a small group of women, and then the rest get a little bit upset, and they kick him out. And so he leaves the synagogue, and he goes and finds a house or a place where they can meet, and then they just begin to preach Christ and him crucified, and Gentiles begin coming to the Lord. 
but he starts in the synagogue. The big picture, the world is the field. That's what Jesus said, the world is the field. But that's daunting. So I want us to focus for a few minutes today. I want us to focus in. Do you realize that like Paul loved the Jews, a religious people, we too are here in a community of religious people, and that God could give us a burden, a desire, that we would pray to God for the LDS people? Do you realize that? We could say the same thing, for we bear, we bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. I'm talking about the Mormons. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Because they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You say, how, Jim? Because they've gone beyond the word of God. They have extra-biblical authority. They've, they've added the authority of prophets, and they've added other books. And they've done what every religious organization that doesn't simply want to surrender to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ does, and they've rewritten the gospel. But rather than be frustrated about that, we should be passionate for them. Because this is our Jerusalem. This is where we begin. This is where we live. I remember when I came here in 1985, I had been witnessing to Mormon missionaries in Grand Junction, Colorado for a number of years, and I came here not just to plant a church. I came here to evangelize Mormons. I came here because I was going to go door-to-door in the headquarters of the LDS church that was sending out missionaries all over the world to go door-to-door in our communities. And it wasn't to come to argue, it was come to proclaim Christ. So we have to think about people. And I want to ask you a question. What is the value of a lost soul? What is the value to you of a human being? How do we determine value? The value of a soul. You see, value is not determined by a seller. You can put whatever price on what it is you're offering, but value is determined by a buyer, by what someone is willing to pay. In the case of humanity or a living soul, God paid the supreme price by offering up himself. It's God that died for us in order to redeem or buy back his creation one soul at a time. See, if you think about creation and you think about the whole world and you think about nations, you might not do anything. And I'm afraid much of the church this morning is not doing a lot as it relates to evangelism. But when you think about it one soul at a time, it, it becomes manageable. You see, the soul's value is measured by its eternal quality. First, the soul is given or created by God. Every one of us has a soul, but it's given by God. Remember when God formed Adam from dirt? And then he did something different in Adam than he did for the animals. He breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of of life. That made man different. So next, 
Because of that, the soul is able to fellowship with God. Think about that. You can fellowship. Animals can't fellowship with God, but we can. And that's why when Adam and Eve would walk in the garden, sometimes God would join them and he would walk with them. The Bible says in the cool of the day. Fellowship. And next, the soul never dies. Did you realize that? You see, while the body returns to the earth, have you watched a funeral lately and you've watched where people come by and there'll be a pile of dirt there where they've dug the hole where they place the coffin and they'll grab a handful of dirt and they'll throw it in on top of the coffin? For dust you are, and to dust you'll return, said God. But the soul returns to God who gave it. These are not my theories or philosophies. This is what... The Bible says, the Word of God. And next, the soul's value is revealed in Satan's plan to alienate it from God. You know, you have an enemy, Lucifer, the devil, Satan, who tempted Jesus and who tempts you, and who is dedicated to your destruction, your ultimate separation from God in eternity. And last of all, the soul's value is revealed in God's desire to redeem it. I like what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 6. He said, all of we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on the Messiah, the iniquity or the wickedness of us all. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.8. He said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, the value of a single soul, according to Jesus, is worth more than gaining the whole world. Now, some of us set out in life, and some of us even at any point in our lifetime are thinking about how we can increase our wealth, our footprint, our influence, the respect of others. But in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus said, For what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? You could get everything you ever wanted. And Jesus says that transaction will have no benefit. There will be no profit. And then he summarized it this way. He said, what will one give in exchange for their soul? Mark my words, one day there will be people in the presence of God at judgment begging to exchange for their soul, their life, everything they've earned, everything they've gained in this earthly lifetime. And it'll be too late. It'll be too late. And in fact, the only price ever paid that can be exchanged for the soul is the price that was paid on the cross by Jesus Christ. It's a simple reality. So let's quickly view Jesus' perspective. Luke chapter 15. This is a perspective that only God can provide. Luke 15, and I'll just treat it lightly today. I know Jason will come back and revisit this, but this is quite amazing. 
Jesus is teaching. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man, this Jesus, receives sinners, and he even eats with them. And they were disgusted. And so Jesus told them this parable, this story. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now get this. The Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, are there. They're listening to Jesus. They're all his audience. He, too, is a rabbi. And they are rabbis. They are Pharisees. They are lawyers. They are at the height of the pinnacle of religious commitment in Jewish society. They are proud. They are accomplished. And Jesus says, let me tell you a little story. And I know he's looking right at him. And he says, suppose you were a shepherd. They're aghast. A shepherd. Think about this. It's a nice story. We like it. We think of the shepherd and the sheep and with the caring of the sheep. But they, they are incensed about this idea of shepherds. Shepherds are nomads that wander in the hills with flocks of animals that's dirty. The dust fills their lungs as the wind blows it up off the... So what a horrible profession. Of course, Jesus doesn't remind them at this point that it's David, King David, who says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And it is Jesus who later will say, I am the good shepherd. And I care for the sheep. The Pharisees don't want anything to do with it. And Jesus says, I will take my flocks to green pastures and I will feed them. And he tells us at other times, he says, the first, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus, who's come from heaven, the Word, putting on flesh, dwelling among us, the Good Shepherd, going to the cross, the first becoming the last, but He is the first. And He calls us to the same. And he says, or, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one, doesn't light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and says, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. So I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus said, and there was a man who had two sons.
today I want us just for a couple more minutes to analyze God's heart and relationship to his lost, estranged creation. Lost souls who he is out to win back one at a time. In fact, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, the whole world, that's big, isn't it? That he sent, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whoever, the whole world, but any one person who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God doesn't save nations at a time. God doesn't save families at a time. He saves individuals. We each must decide to follow Jesus. Something is lost, and it deserves an all-out, at-all-cost search by a responsible party. And the recovery of that lost item results in a celebration. That's what Jesus says. So let's quickly note the progression of the three parables. One out of 100 sheep, lost. One out of 10 coins, lost. And seemingly, one out of two sons, lost. Think about it. There's 100 sheep. One is lost. That's 1%. Jesus says it, it merits a search. There are 10 coins one is lost. That's 10%. Jesus says it merits a search. There are two sons. If one is lost, that's 50%. Jesus says it deserves an all-out search. So the ownership here, the shepherd has 100, the woman has 10, the father has 2. But I want you to notice with me there's two categories of people here that Jesus is dealing with as he speaks. And to see this, go back to verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Listen, now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them, so he tells them this parable, this story. So the story reveals Jesus' heart, but the setting in which it's shared also reveals Jesus' heart regarding the categories of people that exist in the world. The first category are people who are evil and they know it. People who are evil and they know it. They know they don't deserve Jesus, but they still seek him. There are people like that all around us, all over the world. The second category of people, listen to this, they are people who are evil and they don't know it. They think they're better than Jesus. They think they're equal with God. And in fact, they plot Jesus' demise. So the parable of the lost sheep, the sheep aren't even human. We're talking about an animal, a dirty animal. But the shepherd loves his flock. And even though 99 are intact, and don't assume that the 99 are righteous sheep, the 99 are sheep. And sheep are sheep. But one of the sheep is lost. Searching for green pastures, probably climbed up on a little cliff or climbed down into a little cave, and it's lost. So the shepherd leaves the 99 and searches. Then there's the parable of the lost coin. 
It's not even an animal. It's an inanimate object, a coin. And the woman has 10 of them. And the coins are probably denarii, denarius, which is a day's wages. And she's misplaced one, or somehow it's, it's, it's not with the others in the house. And it's precious to the woman. The shepherd loves his sheep. The coin is precious to the woman. Are people important to you? That's the question God is asking us today. And then it culminates in the parable of the two lost sons. We're not used to hearing about it from that point of view. It's the one lost son, the prodigal son. He's the lost son. And I'm going to save the bulk of the teaching on the best parable for Jason, but let me just note a couple of things. Both sons are lost. The first is self-centered. He says, give me my inheritance. And he takes it and he leaves to a far country and he spends his father's wealth on wine, women, and song. Riotous living. We'll call him rebellious. That's the category of person. Rebellious. Anybody ever been there? Rebellious. The second category of people are the self-righteous, the self-justifying. We'll call them the religious. Anybody ever lived there? You could have in the past. You can live that way still. It's possible even as a believer to be religious. Beware. You see, the elder son rejects the love of the father. So what's the point Jesus is making here? Remember, he sits and eats or he fellowships with sinners and tax collectors. They were evil and they knew it. And then he's ridiculed by the Pharisees. They're the lost sons of Israel. They're evil and they don't know it. The first group, the sinners, they know they don't deserve Jesus. And yet they seek him. They listen to him. And he welcomes them. The second group, the religious, think they're better than Jesus. So they judge his every move. Now, it's interesting to me that the first group, the sinners, are always welcomed by Jesus. He doesn't chew them away. He takes time at a well in Samaria to talk with a woman in sin and ask her for a drink of water from a well. Or he takes time when he's walking with the crowds through Jericho, and a little man, the chief tax collector of the city, can't see, and he wants to, so he climbs up a tree, and Jesus walking along stops and looks up on the tree, never met him before, and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today for dinner. Why? Because of the value of a single soul. And so he comes to Zacchaeus' house. The other sinners are gathered there. And Jesus tends to their disappointments. And he ministers to their shortcomings. And he heals their sicknesses. And he saves their souls. 
It's amazing. But the second group, the religious, is also welcomed by Jesus. But they really don't want him around. He's a threat to the status quo. And herein we learn how really big the heart of God is. Because the sinners and the tax collectors probably knew that Jesus was talking about them. They were the lost sheep. Ever been one? They were the lost coin. Can you identify with that? They were the rebellious son. And they knew it. Of course, the Pharisees probably didn't know Jesus was talking about them. But they were the self-righteous elder son. Wow. But Jesus came looking for all of them. Like he came looking for you and me. Like he comes looking for everyone who lives in this community, this state, this nation. To the ends of the earth. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he's still looking today. So this parable teaches us the lost must be found. When Jason asked me to talk about evangelism, and I have before in services here at Courageous Church over the last three years, and I thought, you know, it's so daunting sometimes. Why don't we get busy? Why aren't we finishing the task? And I realized, I feel like the Holy Spirit whispered to me, you're going to win the world one soul at a time. We will win the world one soul at a time. Because the lost rarely know that they're lost. Did you realize that? They don't think so. You know, straying sheep don't understand their plight. I was golfing two weeks ago, and I wasn't driving the golf cart. We were just leaving the parking lots, and we had to drive a couple blocks through the neighborhoods to get to the first tee. And as we rounded the corner coming out of the parking lot, there was a, a weeded area, and there was the cutest little puppy in the middle of the weeds. And he was smelling the weeds, and he's looking around, and he looked at us, and he's just sweet. And I told the person with me to stop the cart, and looked at that puppy, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. My heart just filled with compassion for a puppy, a puppy, an animal, right? And I got out, I got out of the cart, and I went and picked up the puppy, and he had a collar on, and I, I found his tag and I had a phone number. I said, it's a phone number. I took out my phone and I called the number. Voicemail. Called it three times. I put the puppy down while I was calling, just back into the weeds, just happy as could be. Cutest little puppy, little purebred. Expensive dog, no doubt. I don't know what to do. The puppy was lost and had no idea what danger it was in. No idea. Golf carts zipping by. Cars coming out of the parking lot. A busy street. Little tiny puppy. Cross the street, be run over. Coyotes in the hills surrounding the golf course. Puppy's in danger. Puppy's lost. Needs to be found. 
I took the puppy and I put him on my lap and I said, let's go up to the first tee. I've got the puppy with me. We drive up a couple blocks, go to the starter on the first tee, check in. He has a covered golf cart. I explain what we found, what's happened. I said, could we leave this puppy with you in case the owner calls? I'm shook up about this little puppy. He says, of course, put him in the cart. I take the little puppy and I put him in the cart. He just sits right down on the seat, just sweet as can be, so happy. Doesn't know still what danger he's in. We golfed three holes before I got a phone call from a frantic woman. Do you have my puppy? And I explained where the puppy was, that he was going to take the puppy down to the clubhouse, and they would keep the puppy safe. And she thanked us and went and retrieved her. I said, your puppy's so cute. She said, he's cute, but he's trouble. It's like a lost sheep. True story, and very fitting. Lord, give me a heart for souls like I had a heart for that puppy. A coin cannot see or understand or think. And so it is with rebellious people and religious people. They have no idea their condition. And yet the seeker, the seeker, God, wastes no time. At all costs, he pursues. And a celebration follows, and all are to celebrate. Our mandate is to find that which is lost. And what's fascinating to me is that God uses the once lost who are now found to help find the lost. Did you hear what I said? He uses the once lost, that's me, now found to help him reach the lost. That's the Great Commission. I want you to go and to tell people one by one. Jesus says, John chapter 4, don't say four months and then the harvest. It's like saying, don't say three more months and then the snow will melt and spring will be here. Don't say that. Jesus says, right now, the harvest is already coming. The harvest is here. And I'm sending you to reap where you have not sown. And that's what happened. They left the well at Samaria and they went into the town and the whole town came to Jesus Christ. And the apostles went in and led them to the Lord. And all they did is just went in and reaped the harvest that Jesus had been preparing because this is God's work. Jesus said, I've sent you to reap where you have not sown. So we just need to get busy. There was a man who understood this. He spent 65 years in ministry. His name was Billy Graham. He spoke in 185 nations to 2.2 billion people during his lifetime. 215 million people came to his crusades and saw him live. 2.2 million people made commitments to Christ in his crusades. And he said this, the soul longs for God. Down deep inside every person's heart is a cry for something, but he doesn't quite know what it is. Man is a worshiping creature. He instinctively knows that there is something out there somewhere, and he longs to know that something or someone. Your soul longs to know that something or someone. Your soul longs for vital contact with God. Your soul is valuable because it's eternal. It is forever.
And so after the two parables, Jesus summarizes and says, in the same way that they celebrated, the shepherd and friends, the woman and friends, I tell you there is rejoicing in heaven in the presence of the angels of God over one nation, one generation, one sinner. One sinner who repents. That means that there was a celebration over you when you committed your life to Christ. Why would all of heaven be so exuberantly happy over one repentant sinner? I'll tell you why. Because lost souls matter to God. I'm going to wrap it up, but I just want to share just a, 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 a thought or two about my experience in Salt Lake. I want to share a little bit of my influences and some of the implementations that we made when I was here in the 80s and 90s. I was influenced by a church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida called Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. They started a program called Evangelism Explosion. And then a lot of charismatic and Pentecostal churches adapted the program and they called it Discipleship Dynamics. It was the same type of evangelism program. The only difference was before we would go out to witness to people, we would pray and we'd say, Holy Spirit, we can't do this without you. Empower us, fill us, and we want to go in your strength. That was the only difference. And then there was a a conference and a teaching that I sat under called Power Evangelism by a man by the name of John Wimber in the Vineyard Ministry and one of the founders. And he taught a class at Fuller Theological Seminary called MC 510, Signs and Wonders and Church Growth, that revolutionized the students on campus while he was there. And I took all of those programs and began implementing them in our teaching in Salt Lake as we began a church in 1985. One other church that had great impact was Tommy Barnett's church in Phoenix, First Assembly of God, and he had a program similar to all these others called the Saturday Soul Winners Society. And all it was was every Saturday morning from 8.30 a.m. to noon, people would gather for 13 weeks for an hour of teaching and then two hours of on-the-job training. They did it every week. And he would send out teams of two people. One would be a new class member. The other would be a seasoned soul winner. And what they basically did is they just visited the people that had visited the church. And then on Wednesday night, they had a prayer service every week, and he would have all the class members come to the prayer service and listen to what he did. He didn't teach. He would have the class members share about their experiences in sharing their faith. And he would have them introduce people who had committed their life to the Lord in the previous week. And what it did is it reinforced the importance of soul winning in people's minds, and it gave encouragement to people who, who had been fearful or shy about witnessing themselves. He started the church with a handful of people in Phoenix. This weekend, every weekend, they'll have 22,000 people now. 22,000 people gather every week for their church services. So we implemented these same programs when we came to Salt Lake City. Candace was just a little girl. We had a Saturday soul winning society and we did 
a discipleship dynamic. We taught people how to write out their testimony, how to make their own personal track that they could share with people. And we'd go out and we'd talk to people. People in our church would give us names of family and friends. We'd visit people that visited the church. We started with 23 people. It wasn't long and we were running 50. And the people that were coming weren't because they heard about us, it's because we went out and found them. And the next thing we knew, we were running 100, and then we were running 200, and, and then we were running 300, and then we were running 400. And when we'd have big days, friend days, and big services, we'd have over 500 people come to our services. This works. When believers begin to witness, to share their faith, it's life-changing. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's Matthew 4.19. The implication is, if we are genuine followers of Jesus, we will be fishing. Soul winning. So in conclusion, I just asked the question, how can I and you be more effective witnesses for Christ? And I think God gave me several simple answers. Number one, ask God to give you a burden for souls. I appreciated Candace's honesty earlier when she's, she mentioned that maybe we don't love or care about people. It's possible. Well, if that's true, that's, that's not okay. But we need to have a change of mind. Ask God to give you a burden for souls. Ask him to help you see the world as he sees it and to lay upon your heart a handful of people for whom you can earnestly begin to pray and pray over them every day. That's a start. Number two, live a consistent Christian life before others. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. He said, let your light so shine before people that they see your good works and they glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. We must live authentic Christian lives so others can recognize and respect them. Number three, build bridges to others. You see, when the Lord shows you people who need Christ, seek to build a relationship with them. Don't shy away. Cultivate friendships with people who need the Lord. Just very practical. Number four, this one's big. Learn and memorize the good news. Learn and memorize it. Memorize Bible verses and practice them. Oh, you say, I don't need to do that. I got one of these. I went in to get one of these. I said, I need a phone. They said, do you, do you need a smartphone? You know what I've learned is the smartphone is dumbing us down. It's dumbed down the church. You know what we used to do? We'd carry one of these. Call it a pocket New Testament. In my pocket New Testament... I carry tracks, Steps to Peace with God by Billy Graham, really simple. This was your life, kind of cartoony, but impacting. Sometimes I don't get to share too much, but put something in somebody's hands. 
Be a witness. Let them know. And memorize Scripture. Your word have I hidden in my heart so I will not sin against you. Somebody says, if I just put the Bible right here, I just carry it, carry it under my coat, somehow there'll be a transference of Scripture into my heart. Uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. It's got to come through the mind. It's got to come through the mind. Memorize it. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto eternal life. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, are these my words? These are God's words. If I share God's words with people, does that allow God an ample opportunity to do something with those words? Maybe water those words. Let the sun shine on those words. Maybe have someone else plant some seeds of his word. And God changes lives. It's amazing if we'll plant the seed. Witness. Number five, watch for openings to share a word for Christ. Peter says, always be ready to share a reason for the hope that is in you with everyone who asks you. Number six, if the right opportunity doesn't come naturally, create one. What does that mean? That means sometimes there comes a point when we prayerfully must introduce the subject and do our best to impress upon the people we're talking to that they matter to God and that they need him in their lives, their need for Christ. And finally, number seven, leave the results with God. You can't, I can't save anybody. We're responsible for sharing the gospel, but only God can convert the soul. He's asked you to be a witness. You are not the judge. You are not the prosecuting attorney. You are not the defense lawyer. You're a witness. I was in a trial in the last year. I had to go, not as a named party, but as a witness. I went and I shared for a couple days and I left and I was waiting for weeks and months. I wanted to know the verdict. Nobody's called me. The judge didn't call me. The attorneys didn't call me. What happened? My job was just to witness, just to testify. I wasn't involved in any part of the decision. Your and my role is just to let people know how exuberantly in love with Jesus we are. So as we wrap up today, we're going to we're going to sing. I was impressed by one of the songs that Jen led us in today. As we leave the results with God, we realize that He is the converter of souls. And we should never underestimate how God can use us. Follow Him, and He will make you a fisher of men. Be His witness. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.